This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Cardiners, welcome back to the Cardiners Case Report. This episode is a real treat for us because for the very first time, and hopefully not the last time, we get to learn from pulmonary fellows from the University of Oklahoma Pulmonary Fellowship. So I'd like to welcome to the Cardiners, Dr. Samid Farooqi, Dr. Hiba Hamad, and Dr. Talal Hussein. Guys, welcome to the show. Again, such a treat for us. Would you mind introducing yourselves for the audience? Definitely. Good afternoon, Amit. My name is Samid Muhammad Farooqi, and I'm a Chief Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellow here at University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. I did my residency in Oklahoma City after finishing my med school in Pakistan, and currently I'm completing my last year of fellowship. I plan to practice independently afterwards. I enjoy my time with my wife and my eight-month-old daughter here in Oklahoma City. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for having me on today. My name is Heba Hamad, and I am a Palm Critical Care First Year Fellow here at University of Oklahoma. A little bit about myself, I completed my internal medicine and pediatrics residency training at University of Buffalo, and then I came to Oklahoma for a Palm Critical Care Fellowship. My interest is in interventional pulmonology, which I plan to pursue after completing fellowship. My favorite hobby is spending time with my husband, my two-year-old son, and my four-year-old daughter. During our free time, we really enjoy going to several kid-friendly museums and attractions such as the Oklahoma City Zoo and the Aquarium. Thank you, Sumit, and a very good morning to everyone. I am Talal Hussain, currently a second-year pulmonary and critical care fellow at University of Oklahoma. I completed my medical school in Pakistan, and then I moved to Oklahoma, where I completed my internal medicine residency training. My my academic interests include pulmonary vascular disease. Most of my time at home is spent with my baby girl, but in my free time, I love to golf. There are some really nice public golf courses in Oklahoma City, and I also love to listen to music. Samid, Hiba, Talal, oh gosh, what a wonderful group. And I'm so excited and I'm so excited to be visiting Oklahoma City. Take us to a great spot. You already mentioned some ideas. Take us to your favorite spot so we can talk about some serious cardiopulmonary medicine. Sure, Dan. We would like to take you to the Paseo District in the Oklahoma City. Fall is in full swing over here and the weather is just about perfect. The Seo District is a small neighborhood close to the downtown where there are many art shops and galleries and studios. On the weekends, there's a farmer's market and it has a lot of places for people to dine and wine. So we'd like you to sit over here in one of the restaurants and have this conversation. Well, count us in. You know, this episode is such a melting pot of cultures coming together and fellowship training programs coming together. So let's dive in, guys. What's your case? Sure. So we have a very pleasant 77-year-old Caucasian female who presented to our ER with a chief complaint of progressive dyspnea over the last three weeks. At first, she has mild dyspnea causing slight limitation with ordinary physical activity, but now she has difficulty with breathing at rest and a new onset non-productive cough, lightheadedness, and fatigue that develop over the same time period. Subsequently, she had not ambulated from bed for several days except to use the restroom. She denied any fevers, chest pain, or abdominal pain. 
She also denied any recent travel or viral illness. Her past medical history is significant for hypertension, hyperlipidemia, GERD, and left-sided breast cancer, which was diagnosed back in March of 2018. Her surgical history included tonsillectomy, cholecystectomy, and a left mastectomy. Her home medications were omeprazole and hydrocodone. She had no known drug allergies. She denied any family history of sudden death, coronary artery disease, or a stroke. She denied any tobacco, alcohol, or illicit drug use. She retired from a county commission officer about three years ago and has great family support mainly provided by her husband and two grown children. Hey, but you told us that the patient has this history of breast cancer. Can you tell us more about his history of breast cancer? Sure, Talal. So she was diagnosed back in March of 2018. She was found to have invasive ductal carcinoma and was positive for hormone estrogen receptor as well as progesterone receptor, but her HER2 was negative. She was initiated on neoadjuvant chemotherapy with doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide and underwent left-sided mastectomy with lymph node dissection after which she did well and was in remission. Unfortunately, a few months ago, her follow-up PET-CT noted to have widespread bony metastasis in the skull, ribs, spine, and pelvis with pathology findings of metastatic carcinoma consistent with previously known breast origin. Therefore, her therapy was adjusted to anastrozole, which is usually taken to lower the estrogen levels and started on pavocyclib. For those of you who don't know about pavocyclib, it is an inhibitor of cyclin-dependent kinase 4 and 6, known as cyclin-D CDK4-6, and is commonly used to treat advanced breast cancer in hormone receptor-positive and HER2-negative patients. Inhibition of these kinases leads to inhibition of cell proliferation and induce cell apoptosis. Now, going back to our patient, she tolerated three cycles of pavocyclib with marked improvement in osseous meds. Unfortunately, a couple months before current presentation, she developed pancytopenia with platelet count down to 47,000 and hemoglobin down to 8.4 from baseline 11, and pavocyclib treatment was stopped. So, to summarize our case, we have a 77-year-old woman with metastatic recurrence of her breast cancer treated with anastrozole and three cycles of pavocyclic. Patient was admitted for progressively worsening dyspnea and decline in functional status over the previous three weeks. So, Talal, maybe you can tell us more about dyspnea. Yes, absolutely, Deba. Dyspnea is one of the most common symptoms that we see in our inpatient as well as our ambulatory setting. Dyspnea can be defined as a subjective experience of breathing discomfort and it can be a very debilitating symptom with great significance. I like to classify dyspnea from a pathophysiological standpoint. Dyspnea may be secondary to respiratory mechanism or it may be secondary to cardiovascular disease. From a respiratory mechanism, let's consider the respiratory system as a machine which has a controller, a ventilatory pump and a gas exchanger. The problem may be at the level of the controller, that is abnormal feedback to the brain which is manifested by air hunger. This is usually the case that we see in metabolic acidosis and anxiety. The defect may also be at the level of the ventilatory pump and the ventilatory pump is made up of muscles, chest wall, pleura and airways. Examples of this defect would include neuromuscular diseases like myasthenia gravis, pneumothorax and even bronchospasm. Finally, the defect may occur at the level of the gas exchanger 
with problems in the alveolar pulmonary capillary interface like interstitial fibrosis, pulmonary edema, and pulmonary vascular disease. Coming to the cardiovascular causes, dyspnea may occur secondary to acute ischemia, systolic dysfunction, valvular disease, pericardial disease, anemia, and even deconditioning. Long. That was a great summary of dyspnea, especially how you broke it down according to the different places like the controller and the ventilatory pump. If you put dyspnea in the context of this patient though, what comes to your mind? Thank you, Samir. In this patient with active malignancy, there are certain pathologies that I would really worry about. Dyspnea in such patients may occur secondary to pleural effusion, pericardial effusion, Pulmonary embolism would be a major concern. Also, I would worry about parenchymal lung disease like lymphangitic spread of the cancer itself and pneumonia. Dyspnea may also occur secondary to side effects of treatment modalities like anemia, heart failure and pulmonary vascular disease that can occur secondary to the chemotherapy that she receive. Also, interstitial lung fibrosis may occur secondary to both the chemo and radiation therapy that such patients may receive. Talal, that was absolutely phenomenal. And I was just thinking, you said after medical school in Pakistan, you took a year to do clinical education. I wish that we had the opportunity to be one of your students. But but especially hearing about dyspnea from a pulmonary perspective is really a treat for us. I think just to synthesize how you broke it down in my mind, for any patient with dyspnea, you know, we think, is it cardiac? Is it pulmonary? Is it hemologic? But then, like Samita suitly pointed out, we have to think about our breakdown in the context of our patient's malignancy history because it really can color a lot of the presentations that we see. So I'm thinking almost like a three-by-three matrix. So in the columns, we have cardiac, pulmonary, and heme. And in the rows, for each of these buckets, we can think, is it non-cancer-related etiology? Is it a cancer-related etiology? Or is it a cancer therapy-related etiology? And so for cardiac, is it non-cancerous? We can think about the ASCVD and all of the tissues that we think about, like you pointed out, right? Valvular, muscular, coronary, electrical, pericardial, etc. For the cancer-related etiologies, if we stick within cardiac, we can think about a malignant pericardial effusion, just as an example. And for cancer therapy-related for cardiac alone, we could think about radiation-associated cardiac disease, and we have a case from UCSD teaching us about that. Chemotherapy-related cardiac disease, and this patient got doxorubicin, she was HER2 new negative, so we probably wouldn't anticipate that she had received trastuzumab. And we can think about immune checkpoint inhibitor-related adverse events, such as myocarditis and pneumonitis and things like this. So so I love your breakdown, and I think what we'll do is we'll probably take this paradigm and extend it throughout the upcoming Cardio-Onc series. Is it non-cancer-related, cancer-related, or cancer-therapy-related? So let's get back to our patient with this background in mind and thinking through these etiologies. Hiba, what did our patient look like? Sure. So when I met her on day two of her hospitalization, she was a bio with a heart rate of 98, blood pressure of 119 over 80, respiratory rate of 23, and oxygen saturation of 95% on 8 liters via Oxymax, which had increased from 3 liters nasocannula on admission. Her weight was 73 kilograms, and she reported no recent weight changes. On general exam, she had mild respiratory distress, but appeared relatively comfortable and was able to speak in full sentences. On cardiovascular exam, she had a regular rate of rhythm, 4 out of 6 holosystolic murmur at the left lower sternal border, normal S1 and louder S2, and elevated JVP to the angle of her mandible. She was tachypnic without accessory muscle use. Coarse breath sounds were heard in all lung fields with some mild crackles at the lung bases bilaterally. Her abdominal exam was unremarkable. There was no hepatosplenomegaly or ascites noted. 
She was noted to have traced lower extremity edema with normal range of motion of her joints and limbs. She was awake, alert, inappropriately interactive without any focal neurologic deficits. Skin examinations show no rashes or erythema. Very interesting. Hiba, you mentioned on the physical examination that there was some elevated JVP. This could mean that the patient had some elevated filling pressures and then you discussed that the patient had a holocystolic murmur at the left lower sternal border. I am concerned for tricuspid regurgitation. Was this the thought process that was going in your mind too? Absolutely, Talal. Interesting. Hiba, can you tell us what imaging did you obtain for this patient? Sure, Tala. We actually first obtained laboratory data, which included a CVC, which showed a white blood cell count of 5.4, hemoglobin of 7, down from 8.4 one month prior, and platelet count of 10,000, down from 47,000 one month prior. Due to these findings, we further investigated her anemia and thrombocytopenia with a DIC panel. Fibrinogen was low normal at 152. Her INR was mildly elevated at 1.4 even though she was not on any blood thinners. PT was also mildly elevated at 15.9 but PTT was within normal limits at 24. She was noted to have a significant elevated D-dimer. Her pro-BNP was also markedly elevated at 9,574. High sensitivity troponin was also elevated to 69 on admission. And off note, at our institution, a normal troponin level is usually less than 10. And lastly, before anyone asks, yes, she was tested for COVID and she was negative. Wow, Hiba, this is all very interesting. For a patient that is dyspneic with lab findings that are concerning for acute and chronic thrombocytopenia, a DIC panel showing slight signs of DIC and a very elevated pro-BNP. This definitely warrants more workup. What did we do more for her? So we obtained a chest x-ray which demonstrated normal heart size with a cardiothoracic ratio less than 50% and normal cardiac contours and vasculature. The lungs were well expanded and clear. There was no pneumothorax or a pleural fusion. Following, we obtained an ECG. On her EKG, patient is noted to be in sinus tachycardia with a heart rate of 115. It is noted that there were T-wave inversions in the inferior leads 2, 3, and AVF, and also in B1, B6. These findings may indicate subendocardial ischemia and possibly a right ventricular strain pattern. There was a mild RSR prime pattern in B1 suggesting possible right ventricular conduction delay. Those were very interesting ECG findings, Eva. So just to summarize, with this patient who has active malignancy, dyspnea, and especially dyspnea with hypoxemia, there are certain pathologies that I'm really concerned about at this point of time. We mentioned about the physical examination and the lab values of elevated PNP as well. I would now be thinking more about, is it heart failure? Is it a lung parenchymal disease like interstitial fibrosis? Or even if it is a pulmonary embolism based on the ECG findings you presented. I think at this point of time, we need more workup with a CT scan of the chest. Absolutely, Talal. We obtained a chest CT angiogram and there was no evidence of pulmonary embolism or vascular feeling defects. She did have some findings of nonspecific nodular opacity in the distal airways of her left lower lobe. Otherwise, her ascending aorta and pulmonary trunk were normal. Her heart was not enlarged and there was no significant pericardial or pleural fusions noted. That is again very interesting. So, so far we have a patient with malignancy with rapidly progressive dyspnea who is in respiratory failure in whom the overall radiological and the ECG findings are very nonspecific. 
the mild lung nodules that you mentioned on the CT scan could represent anything from metastatic spread to early intradicial lung disease and even pulmonary vascular disease. I'm very concerned though about the physical exam findings of the elevated GVP. But how is the patient doing by now? You're very right, Talal. By day two, this is the testing that has been performed so far. The patient is getting progressively more hypoxic, and now there is evidence of acute renal injury. She's getting broad-spectrum antibicrobials for a possible pneumonia, systemic steroids for a possible chemo-associated interstitial lung disease. The team has decided to obtain a transthoracic echo. Team, this is like an amazing discussion. I'm really concerned about this patient. I was just trying to, you know, be in her shoes as she heard her prognosis after getting therapy, you know, coming in with metastatic disease. I can't imagine how she feels. And, I, you know, just thinking about taking care of this patient, I almost expected this patient to have tons of pulmonary emboli. That would totally like Occam's razor up the situation in terms of the dyspnea, the hypoxia, the presentation of volume overload, pressure overload from the RV. I, I almost was expecting to see pulmonary emboli. If I was a betting person, which I'm not, I would definitely wager that this is something that's going on and the diagnosis is going to be clinched on the CT scan. Yet we did not see that. But just from the image that I am seeing here, and we'll share these with the audience, you could definitely get an appreciation of the RV being enlarged and, you know, the RV ratio to the LV ratio looks over one. So there's something going on here that we really need to get to the bottom of. And I definitely think an echo would be helpful and potentially give us an assessment of what's going on, potentially looking at the intracardiac cavities, but also intracardiac chambers, but also pressures that are going on in the heart to sort of help us unlock this. But this case has really gotten my mind, you know, circling and the gears turning because I definitely want to help understand what's going on with this patient so that we can help her with her next steps for her treatment plan. Dan, I completely agree. You know, I think with the data presented so far, I also was expecting a pulmonary embolism. And I think stepping back here, the timeline is so important, right? This isn't chronic dyspnea. This isn't acute dyspnea. This is subacute progressive dyspnea and hypoxemia over the past three weeks. And the data we have is pointing us to probably a pulmonary vascular ideology, given that her parenchyma for the most part looks okay. And I guess we'll see what her heart function is. But essentially, I'm asking myself, like, what is it that causes either heart failure or pulmonary vascular issues within that time frame? We definitely need more data here. Guys, do we, do we have a window into the heart, the echo? Yes, absolutely, Amit. We did go ahead and get a transthoracic echo. And when I reviewed the echo, I noticed that the study was technically challenging, but still very interesting. Let's talk about the left side of the heart first. The left ventricle global systolic function was normal. There was no regional wall motion abnormality. Given technical difficulties, it was difficult to assess for diastology. However, the left atrium was mildly dilated. Aortic valve showed only mild thickening and there were no major valvulopathies that were noted. So not much abnormal on the left side, but it was the right side of the heart that really grabbed my attention. The right ventricle was dilated with a reduced systolic function. The right atrium was also dilated. Moderate tricuspid regurgitation was noted with a maximum TR velocity of 3.3 meter per second. And just as a reminder that a value of 3 meter per second is considered abnormal and correlates with elevated PA pressures and a value of 2.8 meter per second or above with some suggestive findings of right ventricular dilation are also considered significant. In our patient, the TR peak velocity was already 3.3 meter per second and a right ventricular systolic pressure of 47 millimeters of mercury was estimated. We also got a pulse wave Doppler tracing of the right ventricular outflow tract that showed notching in the flow. 
which is a signal of increased pulmonary vascular resistance. It was difficult to assess the inferior vena collapsibility just because we had poor windows. So guys, this echo is is very concerning and further increases our suspicion of a pulmonary vascular problem. I mean, the RV is large with systolic septal flattening, indicating pressure overload. You've got a TR jet that indicates an elevated RVSP. You've got notching in the RVOT envelope. So, you know, this is a patient who, you know, she has gotten anthracycline chemotherapy and oftentimes will have a baseline echocardiogram. If you look back in the past, was there any indication of a prior baseline echo and were these changes new from at least back then? Yes, absolutely, Amit. We had an echo that was done three years ago from this admission, and that echo was completely normal. None of these findings that we see on the right side of the heart were present over there. Unfortunately, we do not have an echo from that time till this admission to compare. Great, thanks for that. And and certainly so many things can happen over the span of three or so years. But, you know, these findings certainly do map onto her new subacute progressive dyspnea exertion and really do increase the likelihood that this may be pulmonary hypertension focused. How did you guys work this up further? Well, at this point, the primary team requested an evaluation by pulmonary. I want to know what Samir was thinking at this point. It was a busy Thursday afternoon, folks, and we were just wrapping up after our procedures through a really busy day when I received this consult. And right from the start, it sounded serious, but the concerns were definitely heightened when we reviewed the echo findings that Talal just expertly reviewed for us. At this point, we are concerned about multiple etiologies of pulmonary hypertension in a patient with active malignancy. As a reminder, Pulmonary hypertension is divided in five groups or categories. Group 1 refers to an intrinsic pulmonary vasculopathy. Group 2 refers to pulmonary hypertension in the setting of left-sided heart disease, such as heart failure. Group 3 is pulmonary hypertension associated with chronic hypoxemic lung diseases. Group 4 with pulmonary hypertension associated with chronic thromboembolic disease. And group 5 is pulmonary hypertension due to miscellaneous mechanisms such as sarcoidosis, hemolytic anemias, or even ESRD. Group 1 pulmonary hypertension can be idiopathic or hereditary and is usually associated to mutations in the BMPR2 gene. Other diseases associated to PAH include connective tissue diseases like scleroderma, some drugs, toxins such as methamphetamines and anorexigens, congenital heart disease, portal hypertension, HIV, among others. But right now, for our patient with malignancy, the specific etiologies that I was worried about included pulmonary hypertension due to chemotherapeutic agents like desatinib and trastuzumab. Thankfully, our patient was HER2 negative and did not have this. Fibrosing mediastinitis could be another indication due to radiation. Mass effect from tumor, which could be impinging on pulmonary vasculature, but which we did not see on the CT. Chronic thromboembolic disease causing pulmonary hypertension and pulmonary vascular embolic syndromes, including tumor embolic syndromes like pulmonary tumoral thrombotic microangiopathy. Well, Samit, that was a very impressive overview of pulmonary hypertension in a setting of malignancy. How can you assess for confirmation of etiology of pulmonary hypertension and what additional testing we need? Thank you, Hiba. Definitely, with these findings concerning for pulmonary hypertension, we decided to pursue with a right heart catheterization. Would you like to tell us about those results? Sure, Samit. The cardiac cath findings were very interesting. Patient underwent urgent right heart cath, which showed severe pulmonary hypertension. With right atrial pressure that was 17, the right ventricular and diastolic pressure was 16. The pulmonary artery pressure was 46 over 30. The mean pulmonary arterial pressure was 37. 
The pulmonary arterial wedge pressure was 6. The cardiac output and cardiac index by thermal dilution were noted to be reduced at 2.4 and 1.4 respectively. The calculated pulmonary vascular resistance was 12.29 Woods units. The pulmonary arterial saturation was 33.4% and there was no response to inhaled nitric oxide. Wow, Hiba, that is a very low pulmonary arterial saturation. That is 34%. That is one of the lowest pulmonary arterial saturation that I have seen in the right heart catheterization. This probably suggests that the patient had a very low cardiac output at that point of time and very elevated pulmonary vascular resistance. Hiba, what was the arterial saturation of the patient? It was actually 97% on A meters. Wow, thank you Hiba for explaining those right heart cath findings. We also obtained a VQ scan for the patient to exclude chronic thromboembolic pulmonary disease as a reason for her pulmonary hypertension. And the VQ scan did not show any major ventilation or perfusion defects indicating that. For our folks listening in, VQ scan is a very sensitive test to exclude thromboembolic disease even in the absence of a major embolus on a CT angiogram of the chest. The right heart cath showed a hemodynamic profile consistent with severe precapillary pulmonary hypertension with a low cardiac output. As a reminder, folks, in 2018 at the 6th World Symposium on Pulmonary Hypertension, pulmonary hypertension was defined as a mean pulmonary artery pressure of 20 millimeters of mercury with a pulmonary vascular resistance of 3.0 Woods units and a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of less than 15. Also, a right atrial pressure of more than 14, a cardiac index less than 2, like in our patient's case, and elevated PVR, such as when the PVR is in two digits, as in our case, are all prognostic of poor outcomes. All these hemodynamic parameters and the low PA saturation are very concerning. Due to this, we decided to move our patient to the intensive care unit. So the patient was taken back to the ICU for further evaluation and treatment. At this point, the patient is more hypoxic, requiring O2 by high-flow nasal cannula. She's becoming more somnolent and her extremities are cold and clammy. The patient is now in cardiogenic shock due to a right ventricle that is failing to adapt to the high pulmonary pressures. Let's step back here for a second. We've got a patient with rapidly progressive dyspnea, hypoxemia, cardiogenic shock with a failing right ventricle. Like, why would this be, right? I mean, we talked about the etiologies. It's not the left heart. Let's just go back to our WHO classification for pulmonary hypertension, right? For number two, it's not a hypoxic lung disease, at least chronically, right? She's hypoxic now, but she doesn't have, you know, like parenchymal lung disease. We don't have suspicion for OSA. Let's go to group two for a second. Listen, guys, her wedge is six. This is not her left heart. Okay, let's go to group three. We've effectively ruled it out because VQ scan is so incredibly sensitive. Group five is a mixed bag and we can go back to group one. Is it idiopathic? Is it heritable? Is it toxic? Or is it HIV induced? Is it thyroid disease? Is it connective tissue disease? Is this congenital heart disease? All of these things are on the spectrum of a more chronic presentation. This isn't, you know, three weeks ago I was fine and now I'm in the ICU with cardiogenic shock. So how do you take her timeline of presentation, the fact that she's so sick right now and her medical history, how do you put that together to figure out what could be going on in her? Because I, and I think we all are very concerned about her at this point. You're absolutely right, Amit, and that's a very good point. This is exactly what was going on through our minds as we were evaluating our patient. By this time, we have done a workup to exclude the most common causes of pulmonary hypertension. Her pulmonary capillary rich pressure is 6, so we have excluded left-sided heart disease. We have a negative VQ scan, so we have excluded chronic thromboembolic disease. We do not have any parenchymal lung changes, which takes away group 2 pulmonary hypertension. 
and most of her blood workup is negative for any chronic disease that could have contributed towards her pulmonary hypertension. At this point, in a patient who was presenting with subacute to acute dyspnea with hypoxemia, which is rapidly progressive, and an RV that is failing to adapt to these high pressures, one of the suspicions in our mind is for a relatively rare cause of a rapidly progressive pulmonary hypertension in the form of tumor embolic syndromes. And that was the thought process that we went with at this time. But that is really fascinating. And I'm glad that you guys were there to have such a low index of suspicion for pulmonary tumoral emboli syndrome. I've only come across this once in the past, and it was teaching slides from uh, Dr. Neha Quattromoni that she brings up when she's teaching us echoes for the junior fellows here. But can you tell us a little bit more about this? Because I haven't come across this, and I imagine a lot of our audience hasn't in real life. And so what's the illness script for this disease? Definitely, Amit. Pulmonary tumor embolic syndromes are a, are a syndrome with pulmonary tumoral emboli like PEs on one spectrum and then pulmonary tumoral thrombotic microangiopathy on the other. It is a condition that appears to progress from pulmonary tumoral emboli. These are microscopic tumor cell emboli which lead up to occlusive fibrocellular intermill proliferation, mainly within the small precapillary pulmonary vessels. These tumor cells spread hematogenously or through the lymphatics and enter into the venous system through the thoracic duct. The interaction between the cancer cells and the blood vessel wall causes endothelial damage, which leads to expression and release of tissue factor and activation of the coagulation cascade. Tumor cells express cytokines including vascular endothelial growth factor, platelet-derived growth factor, and osteopontin. All of these factors result in macrophage recruitment and fibrointimal proliferation. This causes progressive luminal narrowing and subsequently pulmonary hypertension. One can think of it like an ischemic atherosclerotic process taking place in the pulmonary vasculature. Predominantly, it occurs in patients with adenocarcinoma, most commonly in patients with gastric adenocarcinoma, then in breast and lung, and symptoms are predominantly dyspnea with rapidly progressive hypoxemia. The important part is the rapid and progressive nature of dyspnea and hypoxemia and how out of proportion it is to the overall presentation. In most cases, this is diagnosed post-mortem via biopsy. However, in some cases, blood can be obtained from the wedge position and can be positive for malignant cells. Well, Samir, what a great review of PTTM. Did you obtain a wedge sample? As a matter of fact, we did, and it came back positive for the presence of tumor cell casts that was in sync with her diagnosis of breast cancer. Well, what a great but unfortunate case, Samir. What happened after? While in the ICU, we started the patient on inotropic support and pulmonary vasodilators. With this, we bought enough time to have a goals of care discussion with our patient and allow time for the family to come to terms and for the patient to take a good decision on her own. The patient had a good weekend and decided to pursue comfort care surrounded by her loved ones and passed away. I agree with Talal. What an interesting but unfortunate case. Samir, could you summarize the teaching points in this case? Definitely, folks. One of the teaching points that we'd like to summarize in this case would be dyspnea is one of the most common complaints in the ambulatory and inpatient setting, and its workup in an inpatient setting requires a thorough investigation, including radiological and cardiac workup, like x-rays, CT angiogram, EKGs, and echocardiogram. Pulmonary hypertension should be suspected in patients with dyspnea out of proportion to the imaging findings. Special attention should be given to findings of echocardiogram, especially the right ventricular function and presence of tricuspid regurgitation. If echocardiogram findings are concerning, a right heart catheterization should be performed for hemodynamic assessment and profiling. 
Dyspnea in active malignancy has a broad differential and includes pleural effusion, pericardial effusion, lymphangitic spread, pulmonary embolism, pneumonitis, and pulmonary vasculature tumor emboli syndromes. Pulmonary tumoral thrombotic microangiopathy, or PTTM, should be suspected in patients with active malignancy and rapidly progressive dyspnea. PTTM is a universally fatal diagnosis and is mostly diagnosed at post-mortem analyses. Wedge cytology during right heart catheterization can be helpful in establishing diagnosis, as was the case in our patient. Yeah, you know, this is, as you guys said, a really, really unfortunate situation and really seems like a terrible, rapidly progressive disease. I am glad that she was able to have her loved ones around her as she chose to elect for palliative care. But one of the teaching points that I take out from your presentation and the way she presented was just what you did. You, you didn't stop when a diagnosis was unclear and you pursued it. And just thinking about, we definitely saw evidence of RV strain and pulmonary hypertension and your persistence in workup showed us that that's not a final diagnosis. Pulmonary hypertension has to be pulmonary hypertension due to X. And you demonstrated that you showed that there's elevated pulmonary pressures and we demonstrated it with echo imaging and then we confirmed it with our right heart catheterization. But again, just making that diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension without having something after that is inadequate. And ultimately, you do end up coming to this diagnosis, which getting that information was hopefully helpful for the patient and making her decisions for her palliative care pathway. So definitely, that's one of the take home points that I take from this case. Yeah, I totally agree with Dan. You know, the whole team here really showed a persistence and dedication to diagnosing her so that way she could make a decision that was best fit for her. And gosh, what a fascinating, but at the same time, devastating diagnosis and, and disease. So I'm just so grateful to your patient for teaching us to have a lower index of suspicion and, and teaching us what the illness script is. So, you know, when to think about this and Talal, Hiba and Samira, I'm grateful to you guys for bringing this case and telling her story to the cardiators. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. So you. And now, folks, for the ECPR session, I would like to introduce our faculty, Dr. Roberto Bernardo. Apart from being the head of our pulmonary hypertension program, he's also a great friend, a mentor, and a perfect human being to learn from. Well, thank you, Samir, for the kind introduction. Thank you, Amit and Dan, for having us here. My name is Roberto Bernardo, and I'm a pulmonologist, and I'm the director of the pulmonary hypertension program at the University of Oklahoma. A little bit about myself, I'm from Peru. I did med school in Peru, Universidad Peruana Cayetano Heredia. Then I moved to the United States to do my medical training. I trained at the University of Arizona, then I trained at the University of Oklahoma, and I also trained in pulmonary vascular disease at Stanford, where I trained with Rohan Zemarian and Vinicio de Jesus Perez. We are really, really excited to be here, and the case that Shanit, Hiva, and Talal presented is quite unique due to multiple reasons that I will try to summarize in the next few minutes. And I think there is always value of listening to the perspective, the pulmonologist's perspective when it comes to pulmonary hypertension. Traditionally, we divide pulmonary hypertension in five groups or categories, as most of you know. The most common etiologies of pulmonary hypertension are usually either group two or group three pulmonary hypertension. As a brief reminder, group two pulmonary hypertension is pH in the setting of chronic pulmonary venous congestion which can happen in left ventricular cardiomyopathy, such as HEP ref, HEPF, or valvular heart disease. Group 3 pH is pH that happens in the setting of a chronic hypoxemic lung disease. And by far, the most common etiologies are either COPD or interstitial lung disease. 
Although more frequently we recognize also the obesity, hypoventilation syndrome as a, a strong etiologic factor of pH in patients who are obese and who have CO2 retention. Group for pH or chronic thromboembolic disease is well recognized because it can have a unique approach when it comes to treatment. And on group 5 pH, we tend to put together miscellaneous etiologies of pH. Group 1 pH or PAH is the one that deserves further attention because we are talking about a intrinsic pulmonary vasculopathy characterized by abnormal flow and increased resistance to flow that puts a strain in a chronic way into the right ventricle etiology. So group 1 PAH include idiopathic disease or hereditary pH where patients have mutation on the BMPR2 pathway. Other conditions that can cause pH include connective tissue disease such as scleroderma, exposure to certain toxins that can injure the pulmonary circulation at a common etiology of pH as well. In the past, the most common toxins used to be anorexigen such as fenfeng or some of these weight loss medications that in most part of the world they don't exist anymore. But these days, the exposure to methamphetamine, the methamphetamine epidemic, not just in the U.S., but worldwide, is by far the most common etiology of drugs and toxins causing pH. There is a beautiful paper by Rohan Zemania, my mentor, where she described the experience of Stanford and a unique profile of these patients with methamphetamine pH. Other etiologies of PAH include cirrhosis, congenital heart disease, HIV infection, and schizosomiasis. But as some of you mentioned during the case, the etiologies of PAH are slowly progressive and insidious. Patients have symptoms over the month, if not years. But the case that Samir presented is somebody with a history of malignancy and rapidly progressive symptoms in days or weeks. That's not very common when it comes to PAH. When you see somebody developing a rapidly progressive symptom, certain etiologies need to come to your mind, such as embolic phenomena, you know, thromboembolic disease, pulmonary embolism, and things like that. Or you could also think about medications or chemotherapy or you know, modulator therapy that could be injuring the pulmonary circulation as well. Something that we don't talk much about it, although we know it happens, is how to approach pulmonary hypertension in the patient who has either a history of malignancy or have active malignancy, because that's quite unique. And I would like to spend a few minutes talking about this. Patients with malignancy can have pulmonary hypertension because if the tumor has mass effect that is compressing the pulmonary arteries, such as patients who have lung cancer and the tumor is invading the pulmonary artery or encasing the pulmonary artery, Due to the mechanical effect, you can have pulmonary hypertension or other cancers that invade the mediastinum or have enlarged lymph nodes on the mediastinum. Those lesions can also compromise the pulmonary circulation and by a mass effect can affect the hemodynamics and set a profile of pulmonary hypertension. Patients who receive radiotherapy in the chest the inflammation and injury in the mediastinum can cause fibrosis, and these patients could develop a syndrome very similar to fibrosis mediastinitis, where you know you have obliteration of the pulmonary arteries with the resultant pulmonary hypertension. 
more and more these days, we talk about cardio-oncology and certain chemotherapeutic agents can affect not just the left ventricle, but the tricuspid valve, the coronary circulation, and also the right ventricle. And some of those chemotherapeutic agents can also injure the pulmonary circulation. One that comes to mind and is very popular these days are the tyrosine kinase inhibitors, the TKIs, that they are typically used in patients with chronic myeloleukemia. Patients who have pH induced or secondary to a TKI, once you remove the offending agent, the TKI, pH either improves or resolves. So it's important to recognize that because removing the offending agent can have an improvement on the clinical profile of this patient. But the TKIs are very interesting because the TKIs are a family of medications, and depending on which receptor the TKIs are working on, the TKIs can either be injured in the pulmonary circulation, but some TKIs can actually protect the pulmonary circulation from developing pulmonary vascular disease. That's quite interesting. Imatinib, for example, is one of these protective TKIs. In fact, there was a phase two clinical trial where patients with pH were randomized to either placebo or imatinib. And those who received imatinib, they had hemodynamic improvement of pulmonary circulation. There were reductions on the pulmonary vascular resistance. And it was promising to see this. The problem was that patients getting imatinib were having more bleeding event. And that's the reason the trial was stopped due to safety. If the bleeding event happens secondary to imatinib or secondary to other factors, we don't know. But right now there are some clinical trials using inhaled imatinib. And by using the inhaled formulation, you are trying to prevent the systemic effects of imatinib and hopefully maximizing hormone-adaptive effect of imatinib, if I may. Another chemotherapeutic agent that we know can cause pH is trastuzumab. Trastuzumab by itself can um, cause a cardiomyopathy of the left ventricle, similar to what you see with checkpoint inhibitors. But uh, Sandeep Sakai and his group at Houston Methodist, they reported a nice case of a patient who received trastuzumab and developed pH. Although it's a case report that sequence of exposure to trastuzumab strongly suggested that this was the offending agent. And in fact, when I was training in California, we saw a similar case where after removing trastuzumab, there was a magnificent improvement of the severity of pulmonary hypertension. We did not report in this case, but we follow a similar profile to what Sandeep had reported. The checkpoint inhibitors can also not just induce left ventricular uh, cardiomyopathy, but they can induce pH. There is a recent paper from just weeks ago from the French group where they do a pharmacovigilance analysis and they found that certain checkpoint inhibitors can induce pulmonary hypertension. In our case, the patient did not have any evidence of a mass effect on the mediastinum or findings of fibrosis mediastinitis. There was no concern of exposure to a chemotherapeutic agent that could be causing pH. And because of how rapidly the symptoms were developing, our main concern was uh, thromboembolic disease. The CT angiogram was negative for any ocular defects to suggest chronic thromboembolic disease. The VQ scan, which is the gold standard to assess chronic thromboembolic disease, was negative as well. What is unique about the tumor emboli syndromes and pulmonary thrombotic microangiopathy is part of this tumor emboli syndrome is that 
These embolic phenomena can be so small to be detected by a BQ scan, and pH develops not because of the vascular occlusion of the tumor emboli, but because of the inflammatory response and remodeling that these tumor cells induce on the pulmonary circulation. The tumor emboli syndrome has a rapidly progressive form of pH. The right ventricle gets exposed to an increased afterload in such an acute fashion that the right ventricle does not have the time to adapt to that. That's why these patients develop record failure so dramatically. There are certain factors that will make you suspicious that you have a tumor emboli syndrome. First of all, you have pH, and the work health does not suggest that you have another etiology of pH. But these patients, and these are some key points that I hope you, all of you will remember, these patients usually have thrombocytopenia because there is a consumption coagulopathy going on, and they will have a DIC profile as well with a low fibrinogen and an increased dimer that can raise your suspicion for a tumor emboli syndrome. And more, more frequent, these patients would have small nodules on the CAT scan. And these nodules are not um, lesions on the parenchyma, but actually pulmonary vascular lesions. Something that can also make you suspicious of a tumor emboli syndrome is how rapidly symptoms progress out of proportion to the radiology or your clinical finding. And it's really dramatic how quickly these patients decline. You can meet them and talk to them, and they are on five liters of supplemental oxygen. And over two or three days, they are crushing the intensive care unit with cardiogenic shock. When you have somebody with active malignancy or a history of malignancy and pH and a tumor emboli comes to your differential, the Russian cat can help. Because it will not only show a severe precapillary profile, but when you are wedged with your catheter, and I do, I do my own right catheterization, when you're in the wet position, you can aspirate 5 or 10 ml of blood from wet, wet position, and you can send these samples to the pathology lab, and they can run a pathology testing. I've done many of these samples, and usually they come back inconclusive for the first time. I got a positive cytology by doing this on this specific case. Unfortunately, the tumor emboli syndrome is usually fatal and most patients would pass away. And the diagnosis is usually made for therapeutic interventions for the tumor emboli syndrome are so limited. And I think it's important that when your suspicion for PTTM or for the tumor emboli syndrome exists, that you have an honest conversation with the patient and the family as we did. You do your best to stabilize the patient so they can have time to make uh, an important decision, as, such as what do I want to do for now? How much do I want to get aggressive care in the setting of a terminal illness? Uh, again, thank you so much for having us here. I hope all of you enjoyed this case. Samit Hivantala uh, did a great job, and we are very happy to be here with all of you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Hold on one second. Sorry. You can't come in here. I'm about to record. Oh my gosh. Hold on one second. Just give me one say, last second. Say hi to Avi, Dan. Avi, hi. There's a reason why the door's <laughs> locked. All right. Come back in two minutes. Come back in two minutes. This is my time to shine. Okay.